0: Hello and welcome, I'm Pooja Sarkar and you're listening to the podcast from the bookshelves of Forbes India. I really can't believe that today's our 30th episode. Uh, we started on March 4th, just a week before the lockdown in Mumbai and it has been an absolute struggle at times to record these long episodes. Sometimes you've had... Authors on the other line who couldn't hear me or I have not been able to hear them. We've switched on and off for multiple times. I mean, it has been an absolute joyride to do this. We thank you all for being a part of this journey and a big shout out to Manswini Koshrik who edits these podcasts. Now, coming to today's episode... I must say that I had seen this book Bottle of Lies by Catherine Nibban on a lot of the must-read lists. But I finally opened the book sometime back after my dinner and I was awake till 4 in the morning and I slept only after I had finished reading the book because it's such a gripping read. It is one of those books which narrates the story of all the perils of Indian pharmaceuticals, uh, the low-quality medicines supplied by some of the generics manufacturers in the country, and I think everyone must know about these things, and of course about this man called Dinesh Thakur, the whistleblower who kept writing to regulators all over the world trying to tell them about the fraud in Ranbaxy and as we all know now how ranbaxi fell apart due to fake testing records and material frauds on a lot of counts the book has more names that you might not know about for example like a gvk biolife sciences and stuff uh, and it has also a lot of stories from milan and you know there is a saying there is a joke actually in usfta that if you want to track down um, people in indian pharma for looking for frauds etc you have to really You know, start looking down at people who have left Ranbaxy. That's the kind of impression one has. Now, before I patch the call with Catherine, I want listeners to understand what generics is all about. Ideally, a lot of big pharma companies make a medicine and they file for a patent which gives them an exclusive right to sell that medicine for X number of years. Now, the moment let's say if the right expires after 10 years, then on the very next day, that is a 10 year plus one day, any company can go and file with the regulator and say, I can make the same medicine for cheap with my combinations. But why are generics important? Because it allows the government to buy medicines for cheap for all their health programs across the world. Also, uh, mostly you would think that your doctor prescribes you something expensive. You can just quickly go online, look for an alternative, look for the generic medicine and you can buy the same thing for cheap. Now, Now, this is all about generics and I hope it helps you understand where we are getting into with this Interview. Now, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming in the show so early in the morning and doing this episode with us. When did you decide to write this book and how long has the journey been? Because uh, this book is more about your journey, also apart from just writing the book. Yeah, so
1: um, I didn't know initially that I was going to do a book, but I started reporting on this topic in 2008. Um, I began because I got a tip from a radio show host uh, who has a program about pharmaceuticals. And he said that um, listeners had been calling and saying that they were having trouble with their generics. And he thought that there was something to it. Um, He had taken their complaints to the FDA, our regulators, and they were like, oh, it's probably psychosomatic. So uh, he then called me and suggested that I dig into it. And that began what ultimately became this 10-year journey to try to answer this single question that he had posed, namely, what is wrong with the drugs?
0: Okay. And uh, can you talk? to us about the entire journey when it, I mean, after you started reporting about it, it, you'd mentioned in your book that you've traveled across continents, trying to meet up with the amount of people that you met. And it's such a deeply researched book, if you could just give through a light on the entire journey of writing, meeting people, and where all did you go? Some interesting stories from there.
1: Well. Once I started um, writing articles about this issue and I was trying to understand why patients were having problems, why doctors were unsettled about this, um, I began to get contacted by whistleblowers. And those were people who worked within the generic drug industry who were saying to me, if you really want to understand what's going on, you need to go to India and China. Um, You know, this is where the bulk, the majority of our drugs are being made. Um, You need to understand what's happening in those manufacturing plants. And I do remember very vividly having this moment where I was like, I am one journalist sitting in New York. I don't have sources overseas. I don't have, you know, a foreign newsroom I've never been to India or China. How am I going to do this? Um, but the problem was I didn't want to give up. And so I just kept going. And I do remember, you know, there I was traveling to India, going to China, meeting with people. I mean, it was a, it was a monumental undertaking. Um, I was able to get grant money as I went which helped enormously. And um, I just kept going until I felt like I could answer that initial question that had been posed, which was, what was wrong with the drugs?
0: True. Uh, when it comes to China, it's very difficult to actually get through and understand. And you know, there's a language barrier. There is a way Absolutely. that they work. Yeah, if you could explain a little bit, because I was really intrigued to understand how was it right. to report in China?
1: Oh, it was terrible to report in China. I didn't speak a word of Chinese. Um, I had to hire a journalist there to help me. Uh, That was very stressful because we assumed that, you know, I was being followed, which I was. Everything that I was saying was being picked up. Um, So it is a strange experience to report in a country where there is nothing essentially off the record to the government.
0: <laughs> okay. Now, coming to the book, you know the book talks about this entire journey of uh, Ranbaxy and Mylan and other companies versus, you know, you've taken a look at generics and then uh, also, at how branded companies are doing over there. Let's first talk about Ranbaxy. When did you realize that this is there's so much mess inside Ranbaxy? And if we could talk to the listeners about what really happened, because even now, if you look at if you ask a lot of people, they still actually don't know what happened to Ranbaxy. Right. Um. So
1: I had, you know, once I started getting into how the FDA approves drugs, and I began to understand that it reviews data submitted by companies, so that in order to get approval, companies have to submit perfect data. Not perfect, but data that shows the drugs are effective, they're safe, Uh, and then I began hearing that there was an investigation into a company I had never heard of before called Rambaxi. Once I started digging, it was India's largest drug company at the time. It was the fastest growing drug company in the US. And apparently the FDA had a probe going on of the data quality and whether the data was reliable. Um, I managed to bit by bit piece that together I learned that there was a whistleblower um, who had brought concerns about data to the FDA, and then I was able to piece together that there had been a very explosive PowerPoint that had been shown to the board of directors, which basically was it was uh, the result of an internal probe, which said that Rembaxi had falsified over. Um, uh, 200 data for over 200 drug products in more than 40 countries so this was a this was a massive crime that had taken place inside of Rambaxi. Uh, and once I understood that I began trying to put together the pieces of what happened um, uh, and that this had apparently been Rambaxi's open secret that it falsified almost every single piece of data that it submitted to regulators and people inside had either put up with it or had become concerned Um, and that's how I began to construct it.
0: Okay and one of the important part of the Rambaxi story is the whistleblower Dinesh Thakur and uh, and, uh, he's received so many awards after that, but his life wasn't really as easy while trying to do this. If you could tell the listeners about his journey, and when did you actually meet him? Where did you meet him, if you could talk about that?
1: Um, well, first of all, uh, Dinesh Takkar did something very heroic, which listeners need to understand, which is, you know, based on his concerns that patients around the world whom he had never met um, were getting, you know, substandard drug products from Ranbaxy. He tried to alert regulators around the world. He wrote to uh, regulators in Brazil and regulators in the European Union and regulators at the FDA. And finally, he got the attention of the FDA uh, in 2005. That's when the probe into Ranbaxy began. Um, He did not become an official legal whistleblower until 2007. Um, That gave him some protections. He got a lawyer. Um, So that was really when the official uh, whistleblower case began. And in that time, he was not able to tell anybody what he was doing, not even his wife. And so, there, that put an enormous strain on his family. So this is a very dramatic story, which forms uh, the core of the book. Um, it wasn't until he was seated in a Chinese restaurant uh, in Gurgawan with his wife that he told her, I have something to tell you. Uh, and that's when it came out. Though um, so I can't talk specifically about my interactions with Dinesh, uh, needless to say, he uh, cooperated closely with the book, and I was able to also tell his story in a 2013 magazine article in for for Fortune magazine.
0: Okay, and uh, coming to the part that you know there's. uh... I remember uh, in India, suddenly over the last few—I mean, a few years back—we we used to hear about these news about US FDA shuts down this plant. US FDA has sent warning to the another plan. And it just came like a spur of these news articles, I remember, because I've been covering finance for the last 10 years. And there was a sudden spur in these kind of news that, you know, oh, USFDA has now asked the work hard, uh, to shut down that uh, their UGALDUJ un, uh, unit. So I just wanted to understand that I, your book also explains this concept that, you know, finally, USFDA decided to send a few people in India and put up the India office. And then they started doing, uh, imme- I mean, then they, start, they changed the way they actually do uh, their investigation. If we could tell the listeners what used to happen before and how it changed and how it is really changing now.
1: Right. So previously, um, the FDA would contact um, drug manufacturing plants in India and say, we want to come. Is two months from now good for you? Uh, Yes, we can do that. Uh, Okay, can you make our hotel reservations uh, and arrange our ground transportation? So the dynamic was that the um, FDA inspectors who showed up were essentially guests of the manufacturing plant. Well, if you're having guests over for dinner, what do you do before they come? Teams in to fabricate data to change data, to shred documents, to clean up bird infestations, to do all of this, because they knew exactly when the FDA was going to come. Well, um, uh, starting in about, I guess it was 2013, 2014, uh, the FDA had a new India director, Altaf Lal, who basically came in, looked at this system. Uh, and said, this is absolutely ridiculous. If we want it, you know, by then Rambaxi had pleaded guilty to seven felonies uh, related to faking data. So it was obvious that in at least one massive drug company, there, you know, there was ma- there was terrible data fraud. So Altaf Lal said, let's change this system. Let's do a pilot program of unannounced inspections. We're just going to show up with no notice. We're gonna make our own uh, transportation plans. Once they started doing that, the whole thing changed. Um, You know, there was no, uh, they walked into snakes, lizards, monkeys, uh, fake data, you know, uh, people like in one plant, they gave them uh, 24 hours notice that they were coming But then they changed up the time they were gonna arrive. And they walked in and they saw a group of people feverishly trying to alter data um, that was there. So, you know, (laughs) they, um, you know, it was clear that by changing up how inspections were done, the candid portrait of what was happening in these plants was quite different.
0: Now, I think you've also mentioned in your book about GVK Bioscience BioLife sciences actually shutting down their operations after US FDA kept stalling them. And uh, then there have been a lot of instances. You mentioned this uh, one investigator who was allocated to India who really uh, dug up so much about Indian generics that you know uh, companies did not really like him. Could you talk about him, Mr. Baker?
1: Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, so... Part of the way that this got exposed, all of the data fraud, was through the groundbreaking inspections of Peter Baker. Um, He was a young, tech-savvy investigator, you know, and previously the older investigators from the FDA would show up. Some of them would sit in a conference room and they would say, bring me your data. So Baker, you know, understood that With computers, anything could be anything. So he started looking inside of the computer systems. Once he did that, what he saw was that these companies were pretesting their drugs to see if they were going to pass specifications. If they didn't pass specifications, um, they would alter the parameters of the tests, retest, and then delete the evidence of the pretests right, to make it look like there'd been only one test and the tests were good. Um, But but Peter Baker picked up evidence of the pretests through the metadata that he found in the audit trails of the computers. And that's how he sort of excavated this subterranean testing system that was going on inside these plants. It was quite groundbreaking.
0: And you talked about the part where you uh, where you say that a lot of uh, a lot of whistle blowers have also talked about this that most of the people who have moved out of the senior echelons of Randbaxi have moved on to other organizations and the worry is of creating far more companies with these kind of frauds. Do you agree with that? And what is your view on that?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, the way to end. Um pharmaceutical fraud is to start putting executives in jail. Um, But if you don't do that and you just sanction the company, you're essentially exporting crime because executives leave and they go and they take up posts in other manufacturing plants and they bring their fraudulent methods with them. Um, So that was the joke inside of FDA. If we want to know where the next fraud is gonna be, let's just follow the Rambaxi executives and see where they wound up.
0: In another part, I mean, when it comes to the book, you know, the core of your book, where one in the beginning we talk about Milan and even though it's a generic company, it had a lot uh in the earlier days, they had some values and protocols which actually changed over time. And you talked about Mr. Malik's uh, you know. Uh, a contribution towards it, let's say that way. Could you talk about what really happened at Mylan and how has it changed and what is really happening now?
1: Yeah, so Mylan was a, a company based in West Virginia in the United States. And basically like many other pharma companies, it decided to go global and it began to acquire companies overseas. One of the companies it ended up acquiring was Matrix. And with that acquisition, it acquired Rajiv Malik, who was sort of a, uh, I think I describe him in my book as the Houdini of the generic drug world. Basically, there was nothing he couldn't reverse engineer. And, um, uh, but as he came on, and Mylan speeded up production and speeded up, drugs in the pipeline and global approvals and moved essentially half of its operations to India. Um, With that came allegations that it was committing similar types of data manipulation that had been going on in Rambaxi. And in fact inspectors did go in and they found some very suspicious things at at, um, uh, at myelin plants in India. One of the things that they found was called crashing files, where it looked like the um, laboratory technicians were literally pulling the plugs of the computers out of the wall and corrupting the data. So presumably, if you were manipulating test results, And you didn't want the FDA to know, and you didn't want somebody like Peter Baker to come in and see metadata in the audit trails, another way to deal with it is to literally pull the plugs out of the wall and corrupt the data. And that is what FDA investigators found. So, you know, ultimately what we have here is a global cat and mouse game between these pharma companies and investigators. Um, that that in all likelihood is still going on as we sit here.
0: True. Uh, one thing that I wanted to understand, you know, you've talked about these Indian generic companies, and there's also this thing that you know America needs a lot of these generic medicines because they are cheaper in nature and the government needs to provide these cheaper medicines for a lot of their programs. Uh, a lot of these programs in US or, or for example, Doctor Without Borders or any of these programs, they need a lot of these cheaper medicines that needs to be supplied. And in fact in the case of Rand you talked about how Bill Clinton came and he sided with them and he said, you know, oh wow, what a great thing that they're doing and let's get all these generics on board. So there is this purpose that generics feel that they serve and that there's also a question mark on the quality of medicines that they supply. In this entire balancing act, where do we stand today and how are things going to look in the future?
1: Um, There is no question that we need generics. Our our medicines are unaffordable. We have failed to regulate the price. So we have turned to low-cost providers overseas and we are wholly dependent on them. We cannot do without them. Um, You know, (laughs) there has been an accusation that I am somehow anti-generic and that, you know, the truth is not that at all. I take generics myself. Um, I come from a point of view where I feel like everybody should have access to safe and effective medicines, but the point is effective. That's really the issue. Um, And how do you get to that Place. So, um, you know, part of the problem today is that there are no incentives for quality. Companies have been given incentives to move quickly and falsify data to get approvals. So, how do you incentivize quality? And that is a big question.
0: True. In your book, you talk about how when it comes to, uh, you know, applying for these generics and people would actually camp outside the FDA's office for weeks in their car, trying to rush inside first, be the first to apply because, you know, you have this advantage of you be able to sell it for the first six months without any competition, etc. Uh, uh, do you still see that US FDA needs to do a lot more even today when it comes to how to control generics and the quality?
1: Um, so the FDA needs to create, um, a transparent system that has real verifications in it. So that means unannounced inspections have to be the norm and there has to be systematic testing. You know, you cannot just rely on data companies are supplying, um, you know, and you can't just rely on inspections. The proof is in the pudding. So we need some system of, you know, randomized testing of the drugs. You know, fast forward to COVID-19, and this has become even more critical because the FDA had to cancel its overseas inspections. It couldn't go. So the FDA put out a press release, which reassured absolutely nobody, which said, don't worry, Uh, We can't go into the plants, but we're getting data from the companies and that's the way we're monitoring this. You know, that puts us back into just the blind leading the blind, which is the whole problem to begin with
0: true. Uh, you, in your book, you talked about how Peter Baker is somebody, you know, he was, one of, he was very different from the other investigators. And you mentioned one more Indian investigator who was pretty lenient when he came to India for his inspections. Could you talk about him and uh, how have things moved for US FDA in India?
1: Yeah. So um, I think that inspector you're talking about was Mike Gavini, yes. who by his own description saw himself more as a consultant than as an inspector. You know, he didn't want to vilify his countrymen. Um, He came from the area around Hyderabad. And so he would go back there and it was like old home week, you know, seeing friends and family going into these plants and advising them on good manufacturing practices. You know, the problem with that is that you are not necessarily getting an accurate depiction of what's happening in the plant. And of course, you're giving them an opportunity to cheat and falsify. Uh, so that was the problem with Gavini's inspections. You know, the, there is a belief in, regu- in good regulatory systems that you don't send people back to their home territory. For, for obvious reasons, and that you also need to send them in pairs, which is a hedge against corruption. But that's not what was happening with Gavini. Gavini was going back as a solo operator. And in the course of his inspections, when it was him more than anybody else who was giving approvals, uh, the, the, the manufacturing sector in Hyderabad that was exporting to the U.S. grew Almost exponentially. Um, and, you know, some of the people I've talked to sort of attribute that to him.
0: True. And now coming to, I mean, uh, what are the key takeaways that you want readers to take from your book?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I would say to them uh, m- many of the reviews and the feedback uh, uh, point out that it's a great read, <laughs> that it's a page turning read. So this is not a textbook about pharmaceuticals. This is more like a true crime story about what was actually happening in these plants. So I guess that's the first takeaway. But the second takeaway um, is to really pull back the veil on on an industry that is absolutely life and death, that is critical to every single person's well-being. so people need to know how this system works. Um, they need to know who's making their drugs. They need to you know, hold companies and regulators to account. Um, that is hard to do in many countries that have um, poor regulatory systems that are rife with corruption. And unfortunately, um, you know, India is one of those countries. And, you know, frankly, I don't exactly hold up, you know, paint the FDA as a shining beacon of regulation. Um, So it's not that it's anti-India per se, but, you know, companies will do what they can get away with. That's really the issue. And that's why good regulation is so critical.
0: True. And before I let you go, uh, one last question. How have the uh, entire, uh, the last six months being in the pandemic and are you writing on anything new?
1: Well, you know, like everybody, I think I am, can say with confidence that the last six months have been terrible. (laughs) Um, And of course I had a a springtime of speaking gigs for Bottle of Lies and All of them were canceled because nobody can go to conferences anymore. Uh, So what I did was I jumped feet first into reporting on the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. that's what I've been doing. So I'm a contributing editor for Vanity Fair magazine. And I've been doing investigative reporting on the U.S. government's response to the pandemic, which has been absolutely awful.
0: True. That's true. So cool. thank you so much for your time it was lovely reading your book and speaking to you today